MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, June 10th, 2020. Today, the officer who violently pushed a protester in Brooklyn is facing charges. Bill Barr fails to appear before the House Judiciary Committee today. Trump tweets an OAN conspiracy theory that the 75-year-old protester assaulted by the Buffalo police is an Antifa agitator. COVID cases are on the rise in several states after Trump reopens the economy. The United States is officially in a recession. The timeline of the Trump church photo op is revealed. And major issues with voter suppression in Georgia today. I'm your host, A.G. Hey, everybody. Welcome. We have a packed show for you today. Jordan will be dialing it in. She's covering the protests and voting issues in Georgia during the A Block today. I'll have the headlines from under the radar in the B Block and an interview with Ellie Honig, a former federal state and Uh, federal and state prosecutor. We're going to talk about Bill Barr's failure to appear before the House Judiciary this morning and, of course, what Jerry Nadler is or isn't doing about it. Uh, And we'll bring you the good news at the end of the show. Uh, This Friday's live stream, Happy Hour, will be Pride-themed, and it starts at 4 Pacific time on Friday for patrons, 5 Pacific time for the public. That's this Friday and every Friday. And then, of course, Saturday, you will get the second episode of Quarantine Confessions. That is our spinoff show. It used to be our final segment, but we got such an overwhelming response with your confessions. And we just wanted to do something fun and political, non-political on the weekends. And so you can send your confessions in at quarantineconfessionspod.com. Please let us know if you want to remain anonymous and do it at the front of the email. <laughs> um, we do have a lot of news to get to. So let's hit the hot notes with Jordan Coburn. Hot notes. Hey, welcome to Jordan's Corn Beans from my kitchen. Hope everyone's doing okay today. I've got a few headlines. Uh, I'm going to start talking about primaries because that's what's going on. Um, there's a whole round of primaries happening. Five states happening. Uh, Georgia, Nevada, North Dakota, South Carolina, and West Virginia. And a reminder, Georgia and West Virginia, they moved their primaries from earlier because of COVID-19. So there's a lot of stuff that's a lot of stuff that's happening right now. Um, I mean, this is just such a ripe moment for political action through means of voting, and we're already seeing disenfranchisement happening in huge ways throughout these primaries, and it's really shitty and really scary. Namely, in Georgia, uh, there's so many images going around on Twitter right now of the lines that people are waiting in to try to vote. It's just like block after block after block of people waiting the mayor is tweeting at people please just stay in line there's people tweeting at the mayor saying people are leaving um this mayor of atlanta saying that people are leaving and it's it's just a complete it's a complete mess right now because it's very hard to interpret that in anything other than in any other way than black people being disenfranchised there are people that are sending in accounts of having needed to wait hours and hours and hours in their neighborhood and then they walked over to a white neighborhood and they're just seeing the system go very smoothly and very quickly i can't say that that's how it is if you compared neighborhoods across the board that that's how it 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 is like every single time necessarily but the example that i saw that's what was being pointed out and we can't deny that black people are disenfranchised more than white people 1000 percent in any election that ever happens basically so that is 
a huge thing to follow and to be looking at the reporting for um, this primary today, but some other things to look for. So Georgia, they haven't elected a Democratic senator in two decades, and Georgia the last few years has started to get a lot of blue steam. It's like Zoolander's blue steel, but for democracy. Blue steam. And and it's it's huge. And so they're they're looking to flip some seats there and both in the Senate and the House. And I think it's possible for sure. I mean so there's uh the Republican Senator David Perdue he's even admitted that Georgia's up in the air right now and so there's a lot of people that are running trying to get that democratic seat people running against Purdue are John Ossoff he's a uh, Ossoff he's a CEO of a documentary production company and he ran for congress in 2017 but he failed and apparently that was the most expensive house race in history i did not know that uh he also is endorsed by John Lewis uh rep John Lewis of Georgia and he's just making like a lot of money. He also put four hundred fifty thousand dollars of his own money into his campaign. So the guy's got money, and he's emphasizing progressive positions on criminal justice. And um, I think he's definitely one of the front runners in that race. Some other Democrats running: Sarah Riggs Amico. She is Amico. I mean, I haven't heard her name said out loud. I apologize. Please correct me. Uh, She's a 2018 nominee for lieutenant governor and executive chair of a trucking company. And then there's also Teresa Tomlinson, who is a former Columbus mayor and an attorney. And she made a name for herself by being pretty progressive, ultra progressive. She supported the Green New Deal and a lot of other progressive tenants. And Tomlinson has been endorsed by... uh, Senator Max Cleland, former senator and former ambassador Andrew Young. So that's going to be very interesting to see how that Democratic side shapes up and hope to God that they could beat Purdue. Um, okay, another another thing that we are looking at is so Carolyn Bordeaux. She was running for Georgia's 7th district in 2018, and she lost by 400 votes. She lost to Republican Rob Woodall, and uh, that happened in a recount. So, isn't that always how Democrats lose? What a fucking shame. It's never the other way around. It's never the other way around. I'm sure it is, but not in my memory, and not every fucking time I read about that. So, she lost in a recount. And, um... Bordeaux's running again. Woodall, he was a five-ter- five-term congressman. He's quitting. Um, so so Bordeaux's running again, and it's looking like she's definitely, she's for sure raising the most money. Um, and she's also going up against a lot of other Democrats, too. Their state senator, Zara Karinshek, and state rep, Brenda Lopez-Romero, and Nabila Islam, uh, Islam is endorsed by Ocasio-Cortez. So, a lot of democratic competitiveness happening in Georgia right now, which is fucking, I think, a thing to celebrate that there are so many candidates that a lot of people are getting behind. I think Georgia is killing it um, when it comes to flipping that state. 
and I'm sending all of the blue vibes there. And another thing to look at in the race, there's a lot of Republican women that are running, uh, apparently, and they've been doing better over time. So that's, that's, uh, I think of, I think of, like, Stefanik, Stefanik, when she was just the worst on the floor during all of the impeachment trials and everything and and that kind of when I think of female Republican right now I, I think of her and I just I hope that you know as a feminist I guess you could say you're kind of torn but not really when it's between parties because one party tends to be for women and the other really effectively against and sometimes explicitly oftentimes explicitly against but that's a thing that's happening uh, a lot of women running on the Republican side. And just to circle back really quick to the issues that's happening, that are happening in Georgia right now, in terms of people actually being able to vote and waiting hours and hours and hours in line. Another issue that's happening, I forgot to mention, is that the voting machines are, are breaking and are, and are broken and keep breaking down. And so apparently there are people who have been waiting since 7 a.m. and they've only seen five people go through and vote because the machines supposedly keep going down. I saw... Uh, Atlanta Mayor post a tweet about how if that's something that you're being told is happening at your voting location that the machines are breaking they're supposed to give you a provisional ballot and there's absolutely no excuse for uh, them to give you that you couldn't vote or for for you to believe that you couldn't vote so I just it's such an important time for people's votes to be counted at the bare fucking minimum Voting in so many ways is the most effective tool that we have, that people have, to exercise their fundamental rights as a person living in this democracy. And it's absolutely inexcusable, embarrassing, just another event in a string of botched primaries starting from the beginning it's not been good and it really sucks that it's continuing today and that it's continuing today at a time when so many people are mobilized to come out to vote and to engage in the civic process in ways that maybe they hadn't before in light of recent events bubbling to the surface in a very public and loud and powerful powerful way so this is added to the history books basically, that this is also another level of disenfranchisement that people were dealing with. Um, on the topic of voting, make sure you're registered to vote if you moved or something. I know I just moved. I had to do it. I always, it always takes me a second to remember to do that. Um, donate to voter reg groups in your area or to other areas if you feel like your place is pretty safely blue. And yeah, keep keep doing anything that you can in this fight right now that everybody that I know our listeners are engaged in. Keep pushing, keep going, keep doing it. I have a quick update for some bullshit that happened in San Diego. So yesterday, there was that San Diego City Council meeting that was uh, completely inundated and flooded with public comment callers and comments via an online platform by San Diego residents demanding that the council reject the mayor's proposed increase to SDPD funding. They wanted to increase it by millions and millions of dollars 
not even talk about not even talking about defunding they they were explicitly being asked by everybody implicitly no matter what form their public comment took to not vote for increasing the budget right now and there were over 400 people that called in the meeting started at 11 public comment started at like 11 30 the phone lines got broken down at one were broken at one point because so many people had called into the system back to back to back to back to back people called in urging them to vote against increasing that budget until 10 p.m. at night and that's when public comment finally ended and I could tell you I was listening to at least like 60% of it it was just like pretty much on most of the day in the background I counted four people that said anything outside of do not do this uh defund the police and still eight people voted to do it anyway and only one representative, only one city council member voted to not do it. And it's completely disheartening for so many people that are leading this effort and the people that are engaging this effort and invested in this effort. And it's like the only thing that works is continued and sustained direct action. So after that happened, you know, everybody, especially black leaders and defund the police advocates and it's just they you know get up and fight another day basically and i know that some of our listeners have an issue with the whole defund the police uh subject i encourage you if you're still having like a tough time with that or you're in a weird spot john oliver just did an amazing half hour segment on it um there's that wapo article that we went over that's really great if you haven't read that yet just really encourage you to dive into that further and and look into that but point being just our elected officials are elected officials and they have to be held accountable and they have to listen to the people that elected them that's just what a democracy is that is how that works you have to do that you have to protest in whatever way you can and they have to listen to us that's what has to happen and if they're not going to do that then some more pressure is going to be put on them And it's going to keep going that way, and I believe it's going to keep going that way because people are engaged more now than I've seen in my lifetime, so I feel very hopeful about that, but that's just a quick San Diego update. Um, Hope everybody's doing well and staying safe, and talk to you all tomorrow. All right, Jordan, thanks for those updates. Everyone, we will be right back with news from Under the Radar, so stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey everybody, it's AG, and today's episode of The Daily Beans is brought to you by Sunbasket. Like many people, I have been working from home and trying to reduce my unnecessary trips out, especially to the grocery store. And if you're like me, and you prefer you prefer to avoid the crowded grocery store, I recommend trying Sunbasket. Um, Sunbasket delivers healthy, delicious meals straight to your door, and it's perfect, it's tasty, and it's awesome for, you know, staying at home. Sunbasket has amazing recipes for all kinds of dietary preferences, including my weird paleo diet, and I'm an intermittent faster, so I get a lot of help and delicious meals from Sunbasket. They have gluten-free also, Mediterranean diet stuff, vegetarian, uh, just so many to choose from. And they make it, you know, very easy and convenient. Everything is pre-portioned and ready to prep and cook, and you can make it in less than 15 minutes, and your dinner will be full of organic produce and clean ingredients. 
and it's really easy to prepare. It doesn't matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. All of those things are great for me. Convenience and it, it pre-portion saves me time. Uh, it takes less than 15 minutes. That's really great. Um, I just, I'm so busy all the time. I'm constantly writing or working or on the phone or doing interviews. So that really helps me. And I have no, I'm, t I keep, I keep books in the oven. I don't, I burn jello. I'm terrible at, at cooking, but these are, turn out delicious and easy and everything is pre-portioned for me. And they offer a wide range of recipes. You can try, uh, everyone that they, they have such good stuff. First of all, their, uh, Hwasan steak strip lettuce cups are amazing. Um, that's one of my paleo things. And you can order from any recipes across their menu, and you can skip a week if you want to or double up on your favorite ones. I sort of get, I do that. I like keep getting the same one over and over because it's so good. And some basket facilities, and this is important to us, have the highest level of food and employee safety. They reinforce a strict adherence to operating procedures, and they have increased sanitization frequency in their distribution centers to protect us and their employees. And right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off, $35 off when you order. Uh, so go right now to sunbasket.com slash daily beans and enter promo code daily beans at checkout. That's sunbasket.com slash daily beans and enter promo code daily beans at checkout for $35 off your order. Sunbasket.com slash daily beans and enter promo code daily beans. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, as I'm sure you've all heard by now, if you are on Twitter, Trump tweeted out an OAN Sputnik Russian funded conspiracy theory early this morning that other Republicans and White House officials are pretending they know nothing about. I don't know. I don't I don't know anything about that. Uh, the tweet was about the 75 year old protester in Buffalo, New York, who was shoved backwards by police and hit his head, causing him to bleed onto the sidewalk. And he is now recovering in the hospital. The two cops have been charged with felony assault in that incident as uh, 57 other officers, who I'm sure are just fine people, resigned from that emergency response team, but not the police force, in order to protest because they say that the man slipped and fell. There was no excessive force used, but it's on video. We saw it with our eyes. It's really 1984 of them to try to cover this up. I think all 57 of those officers, I think they should be removed from duty or get their heads and hearts right with reality before they're allowed to enforce anything. In any case, uh, Trump tweeted the following this morning, quote, Buffalo protester shoved by police could be an Antifa provocateur, like he knows what a provocateur is. 75-year-old Martin uh, Gugino was pushed away after appearing to scan police communications in order to black out the equipment. OAN, OAN, which I watched, uh, he fell harder than was pushed, was aiming scanner. Could be a setup, question mark? That's the tweet. Uh, and according to the Daily Beast, the OAN reporter behind this conspiracy theory that Trump is referring to is a Russian national who also writes for the Kremlin-owned media company Sputnik. So let's recap, shall we? There are peaceful protests. Trump runs and hides in his bunker. Um, by the way, it's Barr. You know, remember how he said he was, in, I was inspecting the bunker, uh, just making sure, just going down there, inspecting it for the next weak person. Uh, not me. And um, Barr actually, in an interview, said that, that it wasn't an inspection. It was because of the protests. Uh, but anyway, 
He, he's, he, he goes and hides in the bunker. Next day morning, he calls Putin, which we learned about from Russian media, by the way. Then he emerges from the bunker with his Antifa conspiracy theory, theories and calls on governors in a, in a phone call to dominate the citizenry, citizenry, along with a call for the use of military force against American citizens, and then makes that power move bullshit thing to tear gas peaceful protesters in Lafayette Park to bravely walk out amongst the lawlessness with his top cop, Bar and Joint Chief of uh, Chair of the Joint Chiefs uh, Millie at his side to take a photo with a Bible in front of a damaged church, and now Russian national media, wholly owned outlets by the Kremlin, are pushing the Antifa conspiracy theory, and our president is amplifying it. So yeah, I'm sure Trump and Putin talked about oil markets on that call. Um, This is so simple, and of course these are beans. I have no proof because we don't know what was on that call. But Trump called Putin. He was crying. What do I do? Uh, I'm scared. And Putin told him to unleash the military force and and tell governors to dominate protesters and give the enemy a name. Uh, And that's, you know, Trump picked Antifa and then show power, have a show of force by leaving the White House. Find a reason to walk outside and move people with your army. Uh, I'm also willing to bet Putin said he would mobilize his state owned media to push the Antifa conspiracy, too. And I know this sounds crazy and yet it also seems glaringly obvious. uh, But by the way. This is just out from NPR. There have been zero cases of Antifa-linked violence in Justice Department cases brought over the unrest. And so that's a zero. NPR reviewed every single Justice Department court document of all 51 individuals facing federal charges in connection with the protests. And as of Tuesday morning, none, zero, zilch, none of them uh, have links to the Antifa movement. So um, speaking of the photo op at at St. John's Episcopal, Uh, Washington Post Investigations has published a piece called The Crackdown Before Trump's Photo Op, What Video and Other Records Show About the Clearing of Protesters Outside the White House. This is an incredible piece of video reporting from the investigative team at at the Washington Post. And they analyzed hours and hours and hours of of video, protest video, drone video, media video, and audio. Uh, And they obtained transcripts of police communications um, and radio communications to police, park police, the Bureau of Prisons folks, Secret Service, and all, all sorts of other records to assemble the most complete and accurate account to date of what happened that day in Lafayette Square Park, including the roles of the agencies involved and the tactics and weaponry they used. So definitely check out that video. They go through it minute by minute. Uh, it's harrowing. It's chilling. It's not something that should happen in the United States of America. And if if this wasn't uh, on Putin's recommendation, I am I'd be hard pressed to find out who came up with it because since then, uh, Esper has distanced himself from this. The police uh, involved, a lot of the police involved in this, um, have said that they thought they were clearing the square to build more fence, more of that baby gate that they have around the White House. So there's a lot we don't know, but this is a really, really comprehensive video diary of that timeline and it's really amazing so uh, i just tweeted it out uh, on our muller she wrote twitter account i tweeted it june 9th at 3 15 pacific time so check it out and in the greatest irony i've seen today i suppose <laughs> we get we get a new uh, amazing irony on a daily basis now uh, it's being reported that Stephen Miller is said to be working on Trump's race speech this week, his unity speech. Stephen Miller. 
uh, I don't even know how to make a joke about that because I would normally say that would be like Stephen Miller writing a race unity speech, which, but that's what's, that's what's happening. So a unifying speech about race centered around a wall because uh, apparently it, this speech is said to contain border protection talking points as well. So a uh, unifying speech about race centered around a wall and white nationalism. Perfect. Sounds perfectly Stephen Miller. I've already posited what I think will be in the speech. I'm sure we'll hear about another, perhaps, Putin call before he gives it. Uh, I'm sure we'll hear about it from a Russian state media source, not our own press. Uh, It will be a speech aimed directly at his white base to ease their sneaking suspicions that he's a racist and give them a tiny crumb of a reason to absolve their fake Christian hearts for knowingly voting for a racist. Um, We will break that speech down for you if it happens as I'm assuming Mitch and Lindsay are begging him to just keep his mouth shut. But you know, he loves a spectacle, and Stephen Miller's in his ear, so. Uh, Here's some coronavirus news. We are up over 112,000 deaths, and the Washington Post is reporting that because of our diligence in some states with stay-at-home orders, social distancing, and wearing masks, a study has found that we prevented 60 million coronavirus infections in the United States. We did that. That was us. Trump will take credit, but we did that. We did it in spite of Trump's negligence and his failure to act. So um, I think think that that's important to note. A separate study from epidemiologists at Imperial College London estimated the shutdown saved about 3.1 million lives in 11 European countries, including 500,000 in the United Kingdom, and dropped infection rates by an average of 82%, sufficient to drive the contagion well below epidemic levels. The two reports, published simultaneously Monday in the journal Nature, use completely different methods to research or to reach very similar conclusions. Uh, They suggest that the aggressive and unprecedented shutdowns, which caused massive economic disruption and job loss, were effective at halting the exponential spread of the novel coronavirus. Uh, The two reports uh, on the effectiveness of the shutdowns came with a clear warning that the pandemic, even if in retreat in some of the places hardest hit, is far from over. The overwhelming majority of people remain susceptible to the virus. Only about 3 or 4% of people in the countries being studied have been infected to date. And Samir Bott, senior author of the Imperial College London study, um, he's, he's cautioning us that we're just at the beginning of this epidemic and we're nowhere near herd immunity. But the purpose of this study was to inform us what we got in exchange for our sacrifices. Don't let Trump take credit for that. And from NPR, we are officially in a recession. Uh, It may seem obvious with double-digit employment and plunging economic output, but if there was any remaining doubt that uh, there is a recession, uh, it's been removed by the official scorekeepers at the National Bureau of Economic Research. The Bureau's Business Cycle Dating Committee said the expansion peaked in February after a record 128 months, and we've been sliding into a pandemic-driven recession since then. Um, NPR says in making the announcement, the committee pointed to the unprecedented magnitude of the decline in employment and production and its broad reach across the entire economy. At the same time, the committee noted the recession should be short-lived. The U.S. added 2.5 million jobs last month after losing more than 22 million in March and April. Many forecasters said they expect economic output to begin growing again in the third quarter, Q3. So that's, what, that is January, March, April, May, June... July, August, September, leading up to the election. 
The standard definition of a recession, just so you know, is, quote, a decline in an economic activity that lasts for more than a few months. The committee decided this downturn is so severe that it earns the recessionary title, even if the recovery begins quickly. From an official point of view, recessions end when the economic bleeding stops, even if that takes years for the patient to make a full recovery. So you could be out of a recession and still feel its impact for years after. While the committee points to February as the month the economy peaked and the recession began, the quarterly peak came at the end of last year. The economy slowed so sharply in March as the government tried to halt the spread of coronavirus. Uh, sorry, our state governments, not the federal government. It erased the gains of January and February and turned economic output uh, for the first time for the first quarter negative. That's um, the first quarter. And Bill Barr refused to show up to testify to the House Judiciary today. That's interesting. Uh, we'll be right back with Ellie Honig to discuss the consequences, question mark. So stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and this tasty helping of the Daily Beans is brought to you by Magic Spoon, my new favorite thing on the planet. Uh, when I was a kid, cereal was my favorite food, but as an adult, I've had to give it up because cereal is, you know, it's full of sugar and chemicals and weird stuff. But I am so excited to share with you. Um, I found Magic Spoon. It, it tastes so delicious. It is the best thing I've put in my mouth, but without the sugar, carbs, or guilt, Magic Spoon brings me right back to that feeling of being a kid watching Saturday morning cartoons, drinking cereal milk after I'm all done. It is so good, you will not believe it's good for you. As Forbes magazine says, with cereal that tastes this good and offers so much nutritional value as opposed to none, Magic Spoon may be the future of breakfast. Magic Spoon cereals have, amazingly, zero sugar. 12 grams of protein, and only 3 net grams of carbs in each serving. It is keto-friendly, it is gluten-free, it is grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And the best part, it's just really, really delicious. Uh, with four amazing flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry. Um, it tastes incredible. It's too good to be true, but it's real. My favorite flavor right now, uh, I've, I've gone from blueberry. It was blueberry. It's now cocoa. It's jammy and chocolatey. And I find myself snacking on it uh, or having it as a dessert, but it's actually breakfast. It's guilt-free. So go to magicspoon.com slash dailybeans to grab a variety pack and try it today. Be sure to use our promo code dailybeans at checkout, too, to get free shipping. Magic Spoon is so confident. They have a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. So you have to try it. That's magicspoon.com slash dailybeans and use the code dailybeans for free shipping. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring the podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. So the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, demanded Bill Barr testify this morning, June 9th, to answer a litany of questions, beginning with his unprecedented interventions in the Roger Stone and Michael Flynn cases. And Barr failed to show up. So joining me today to discuss is former federal and state prosecutor Ellie Honig. Ellie, thanks for speaking with me today. AG, always happy to be with you and to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is the ineptitude of Jerry Nadler. <laughs> a lot of people hold him up, like give him, like hold him up as sort of a, a hero. And, and uh, you know, we, we, we gave him big props when he filed for the Mueller grand jury materials back on July 27th last year under Article 1 powers of impeachment. We were like, a spine, a spine has grown. Um, and yet here we are still trying to battle that, uh, battle that case in court. But uh, back in... February, uh, Bill Barr agreed to testify March 31st before the House Judiciary amid growing concerns over him being a giant asshole, but more specifically, his <laughs> interventions in charges brought against friends of Donald J. Trump. Uh, that March 31st date was pushed back to June 9th, which is today, over COVID concerns. But um, 
it appeared that a couple weeks ago, Jerry Nadler was concerned that Barr might not show up because he spelled out some consequences for Bill Barr if he failed to appear. What were those consequences? Can you tell us? Gosh, it was some combination of a sternly worded letter and a potential subpoena. And I'll be I'll wag my finger at you. I think I'm I'm speaking loosely here, but it was the usual Nadler platter of vague, lukewarm threats with no real no real enforcement behind them. But I think I think what he said was, I'm going to I'll subpoena you and we'll go from there. And then he slowly backed off that. And of course, Come come today and, and bar no shows yet again. And Nadler has shown no appetite to go to court. And Nadler, Nadler's explanation for that was we don't have time for it or I don't have energy for it or something to that effect, which is completely bogus. Yeah. And I think he had did. I think after uh, that, you know, finger wagging letter, he had mentioned something about defunding the attorney general's office, um, uh, which, uh, first of all, I I don't understand why Barr wasn't subpoenaed. And then I also don't understand, and I know that for the last 90 years or whatever, when we hold somebody in criminal contempt, we go have to go to the Department of Justice, which is Bill Barr, uh, and then they decide whether or not they're going to, uh, you know, hold, you know, charge contempt. Um, but why not? What's whatever happened to those good old inherent powers of contempt? And yeah. and what what else? What do you think? Uh, Nadler, aside from defunding the office, which he has yet to do, and we'll see what happens, but what else should he be doing here? Yeah, so a couple things here. On the whole defunding threat, the, the Nadler's threat to defund DOJ, he can't and he won't. Um, the House of Representatives can't unilaterally defund. You would, you would need Congress as a whole, the Senate included. You would, it, just, it won't work that way, and he's not going to defund the Justice Department. I don't think anybody took that threat seriously from the moment he said it or, or, or tweeted it. Now, this is a question. The other question is one that I get very commonly through my sort of CNN inbox from viewers and readers. And the question is, why on earth can't Congress ever enforce its subpoenas and what options do they have? So let me run through what those options are and why a lot of them are imperfect. OK, number one, this inherent power used to exist, but it's just become a historical relic. In, in ye olden days, the Congress, the House, the Senate had their own sergeant at arms and they had their own little jail. There's actually some interesting historical debate about where that jail used to be on the Capitol grounds. But. That has simply gone away. They haven't actually used that power since the 1930s, so we're almost 100 years out. And there is a sergeant at arms, but he's a security force. He's not an arrest-making force. You would, you just, as a practical matter, it just doesn't happen. The other thing that you could do in the good olden days was refer a case over to the attorney general, the Department of Justice, who could consider bringing criminal action for contempt. But, of course, that's the person you're, you know, you're going after here is Bill Barr. So let's be realistic. There's no way Bill Barr is going to enforce a, a subpoena or a contempt order against himself. The, the, the third real option, and this is what Nadler should be. People say, well, what do you think Nadler should be doing? Easy for you to sit there and second guess it. OK, here's what Nadler should do. Issue a subpoena. Say, I want you on whatever date. If you're not there, you will be subpoenaed. And then, and, and then make the subpoena return date next week. Right. Let, let, let me. And then if bar if bar or whoever your subpoena recipient does not appear, then you immediately go to court and you demand expedited, meaning sped up review. Now, what has Barr done? Barr has issued. First of all, he's not even subpoenaed a lot of people. A lot of the people that he said he wanted to talk to in the aftermath of Mueller or relating to impeachment have just blown him off and he's never subpoenaed them for the subset that he has subpoenaed. 
they've all blown him off, and he's only really gone to court in a meaningful way on one of those people. That's Don McGahn. Now, it took Nadler four months to go to court to enforce that subpoena. He issued the subpoena in April of 2019. It took him till August for reasons nobody could, can credibly <laughs> explain yeah. to, to, to go to court. And guess what? We're still in court. We're still in the intermediate appeals court because Nadler never said, hey, judge, this is time is of the essence here. We need you to expedite. And guess what? Judges can and will expedite if appropriate. And this would be absolutely appropriate. So Nadler is playing softball and the Republicans are playing. I don't know if it's hardball or, or you know, they're not playing by any rules. Whatsoever. They're not playing. A, they're not playing. They're just not playing. <laughs> and as a result, Nadler's absolutely getting steamrolled and completely failing in his oversight r- responsibility. Yeah. And, and one has to wonder if the court didn't light a fire to get the McGann thing taken care of. It was because Nadler didn't light a fire to file it with the court in the first place. I mean, if I were a court, I'd be like, yeah, this doesn't seem real urgent if you sat on it for, for four fucking months. It's hard to go into a court and say, I need this decided urgently when you've taken four months. But I mean, you know, let's remember the Mueller report came out in, in March, April of 2019. Immediately, if you want to follow that up in a meaningful way, if you're Jerry Nadler, you subpoena your key players, your McGann, your Lewandowski, your whoever, up and down the line. You, you give them all a very short return date, and if they don't come back, you go right into the courts. And there has just been, and the excuse, by the way, for not take, going into the courts has been, well, it takes too long, right? That that's what you'll hear from from the Nadler, Nadler, and and others. To which I say, well, it takes too long if if you don't if you drag your feet. And what other option is there? Do nothing. Well, I guess that takes shorter. <laughs> I mean, but you but you. <laughs> You get nothing done. And let me say, Nadler, Nadler is, let's sort of apportion blame correctly here. The, the bottom line problem here is the Justice Department has been completely compromised as an independent law enforcement agency. They, the Justice Department has compromised its own independence and its credibility. And the two people most responsible for that, and we can argue about what order, but one and two in some order are Bill Barr and Donald Trump. No question about it for all the reasons we've talked about, the, the politicization for the Stone case, the Flynn case, you know, the follow-up to the Mueller report. But Jerry Nadler is probably in, in the most powerful position to do something about it, to at least shine a light on it as the chair of the Judiciary Committee over in the Democratic-controlled House. And he's just completely failed. I mean, what has been Jerry Nadler's biggest contribution to public awareness of the politicization of DOJ. The only public hearing he's had has been the joke of a hearing of Corey Lewandowski Mm. last year. Everything else he's agreed to take partial testimony behind closed doors of Hope Hicks and people go in and tell him nothing and then he whines about it in public. So think about it. I mean, what transparency has Jerry Nadler imposed on DOJ? Yeah. And so here's a question for you, because for the for the McGahn subpoena, the re- even though it was, you know, sat on that for four months before he went to court, the reason for an expedited briefing schedule would have been impeachment. Uh, now, what would the reason for an expedited briefing schedule in a, a subpoena noncompliance by Bill Barr be? What would be the reason um, to, to expedite it? I think you would just I think you would just argue to the court the overall urgency of it. We are we are. Um, look, I would say to a court, I would say this more politely than I'm about to say it, but you're the district court for the for the for Washington, D.C. You have plenty of cases, but 99 percent of them are just your sort of routine civil disputes or routine criminal cases. This involves accountability, public accountability from the top law enforcement officer in the country. He's defying a subpoena from us. That's a big damn deal. 
and we need a ruling quickly. And if you drag this out any farther from today, we're going to be beyond, we're going to be past the end of the congressional term. If this stays on the normal course, we're going to be arguing about this past January of 2021. So I think I think it's fairly understandable why you would need to expedite that. Just the political calendar and the urgency and importance of the issue, I think, would be your argument. And um, I mean, yeah, because it seems like I mean, Lindsey Graham on the Senate Judiciary is getting gearing up to subpoena 53 people in the, in a bullshit investigation that <laughs> right. uh, that. Like and so here you've got all this, you know, chutzpah coming from from the Republicans to investigate nothing. Um, I mean, just think about how fervently they went uh, in in Benghazi or with the Hillary email situation, and now here we have actual threat to the rule of law in this country, and it just seems like it's just so frustrating, um, you know, as a as a citizen paying the salary of of these folks that that you know. It took them four months to get on the McGann train to court. They didn't. A Mueller report came out in April. We didn't have an impeachment officially open until September. Uh, I just I feel like that now, you know, that we did a lot of shows about there is a reason that we are waiting. We're waiting for the American people to get behind this politically. Uh, but had they started it in the courts earlier, by the time the fruit came to bear, the rest of the country would have been behind it. And we would have been able to reap that those seeds uh, at, at a time when it was critically important. And now that time has passed. And of course, the argument is going to be, we have the argument Comey's been making since the beginning. We have an election. Let the American people decide. Well, now we do in a hundred and something days. And so... Here, here we are now with a lot less footing and still no a feeling of no real power to do anything, especially when this corrupt government, particularly Trump and Barr, control 2.5 of the three branches of government. Right. And let, let's remember, there was never going to be an impeachment based off of Mueller's report. I mean, that was clear from day one, right? Nadler was seemed to be kind of pushing for it, but he wasn't being assertive enough in pursuing the witnesses. Pelosi, at the, you, you'll recall, was making sort of these, I thought, non-convincing excuses. Well, we need more evidence. It's like, you're not going to find anything that Mueller didn't find. She clearly didn't want to do it until Ukraine happened and dropped in Democrats' lap a, a, an almost better route to impeachment, which they took. And I, and I do give Adam Schiff's uh, committee credit for, I think, for the work they did. I think they did extraordinary work. Agreed. But remember, the impeachment had to be really taken away. Remember that moment when Pelosi politely said, okay, Jerry Nadler, we're going to move this over to Adam Schiff. You're going to do the ceremonial stuff in the Judiciary Committee. But the real fact-finding, I'm biased, Dan Goldman's my friend, but I mean, the real fact-finding happened with Adam Schiff and Dan Goldman. They're the ones who, even even with their subpoenas being ignored, put on Bill Taylor and Marie Yovanovitch and put on that compelling case. But then it went back to Nadler and went back into slow play mode. Um, and, and what's really different here, big picture, is just, as you said, the level of defiance. I mean, there have been, look, there has been game playing by Republicans and Democrats using the pedestal of Congress to, to have public hearings for all manner of political purposes over the years. But traditionally, there's a push and pull. There's a negotiation. There's an accommodation. Okay, we'll make this person available, but only for four hours or whatever. And, and they work it out or, or you know, if, if necessary, they go to the courts. And what we see here, though, is different, where the Republicans have just said blanket no. Remember, Donald Trump said we're not, we're not trying to guess 
Donald Trump's motives. He said it into a microphone. We're fighting all the subpoenas. Yeah. We're fighting all the subpoenas. And that's what they did. And Nadler just sort of looked at it and goes, well, how about I half-heartedly fight back on one of them? And that's really, that's where we are. Well, and yeah, and I think a lot of the problem comes from the fact that the, first of all, it's it's leader, Democratic leadership's job to to sell the idea of impeachment and the and the necessity of it to the public. But it seems like they left it up to the press, waited to see what the American people thought. And I, I, I don't understand why that was a thing. We were already past the midterms. We were a year and a half out from from the next election. It was it seemed like the time. And I, I, I don't know if they just didn't have the time or the energy to to push that or to to write a message or to <laughs> Uh, convince and lead, and uh, and and I'm really hoping that with um, that some of these, you know, in the next term, that some of these younger, um, younger folks are gonna, and and it's got nothing to. I shouldn't. That sounds ageist. I should. I mean, more progressive uh, folks, you know, might take over and 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 put some teeth into these rules uh, and and hold people accountable. Yeah. And, and let me add to that. The, the dispute right now with William Barr is really even separate from impeachment. I mean, w- the reason Bill Barr needs to testify, not because it goes to any any potential impeachment, not because it goes really to Mueller or to Ukraine. He needs to testify because he needs to be questioned publicly and held accountable for his actions on Stone, on Flynn, now on the way he's, he's apparently abused his power with relation to the protests. Um, I mean, Look, it's standard accountability. I think every attorney general has gone in front of Congress multiple times uh, just as a standard practice. And Barr is seems likely to never go in front of Congress again. I mean, he went that one time he was supposed to go in front of the Senate one day and the House one day um, when he was being questioned about the Mueller report. And he just no showed on the House and they didn't do anything. He went to the Senate and he no showed in the House and the House didn't do anything about it. And now, again, he has been badly damaging DOJ and he has questions to answer. This is exactly what oversight is supposed to be. And Barr is just blowing him off. And Nadler is say, has already given a, given up the strategy. He said, I'm not going to court. Okay. So now you're going to rely on the good faith of Bill Barr to show up. Good, good luck with that. And this defunding thing, I, I don't think anybody even took half seriously for half a second certainly nobody in in the justice department that that jerry nadler could meaningfully defund the department of justice to to punish bill barr yeah so many questions for bill barr my question du jour being how are you possibly how are you possibly pressing for charges against flynn's partner bijan rafikian for for fara felonies and not charging flynn for those felonies after he blew up his fucking plea agreement. Uh, I would have a lot of questions for Barr, but one I would want to ask him, I would say, Attorney General, you have about 60,000 cases at any given time in, in front of the Department of Justice. Um, other than Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, what cases have you personally <laughs> intervened in to undermine your prosecutors? I have. I, I, here's his answer. Here's his answer. Uh, well, I got Manafort out of Sing Sing. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, he has so many questions to answer. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty intense. And then, of course, you know, you've got the shuffle over the D.C. U.S. attorney's office. It's Sherwin now. It was Tim Shea. 
uh, somebody from Cleveland is nominated, which gives Sherwin 210 days. That puts us past the election. Right. Uh, Sherwin is an advisor to Bill Barr. Tim Shea was an advisor to Bill Barr. He's now in charge of the DEA that Bill Barr wants to have spy on the left wing radical Antifa protesters. Uh, <laughs> it's just fucking bizarre. And, and I I I I guess the only remedy here is to organize and vote and and just keep calling your representatives and, and, and asking them to do something. I don't know what else we can do. Yeah, and look, there, there's, I, when I've been sort of public in my criticism for Nadler, I get, I get a lot of the pushback I get from, from people, from viewers and readers is, well, he's trying hard and, and, and the people he's up against are really playing dirty, the, you know, and what's he supposed to do? And I say, look, I don't attribute bad motives to Jerry Nadler. I attribute bad competence to Jerry Nadler. For whatever reason, he's just not willing to fight this. I mean, it's almost like, look, all that the Democrats have right now in, in order to uh, ensure accountability is the House. And Judiciary Committee is the only real committee that has meaningful oversight over the Justice Department. And he's done nothing with it. It's like if, if you had a goalie inside, if your favorite team, soccer team had a goalie and he was terrible and he was getting scored on left and right and he was kicking the ball into his own net. You wouldn't go, well, he's trying hard and he's got tough opposition. You would go, he's incompetent. He needs to be, he, he, he can't play this position anymore. It's too important of a position to have someone who's not up to the job. So that's my criticism of, of Nether. It's a straight competency uh, and perhaps uh, fortitude type of argument. Yeah. Also, I was a little disappointed in Richie Neal in the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, how he didn't get Trump's taxes when every time the House Ways and Means Committee asks for taxes, they get them is just beyond me. Um, and after uh, New York signed into law that they can have the state taxes if they just ask and they never asked, it's just, it's just weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. anyway, um, good, good discussion. <laughs> Listen, as you can tell, it's always, th- it's always a bit therapeutic for me to my, two of my biggest, uh, two of the people I, I, I think have failed the country the most. I mean, Bill Barr has more than failed. I think he's betrayed the justice department. And I think Nadler has failed in his job to hold Bill Barr accountable. So these these issues, as you, you maybe can tell, are, are I feel strongly about it. I think if you talk to any Justice Department alum of whatever political persuasion, uh, they'll feel the same. I mean, I, I look, I'm still in touch with plenty of DOJ alums and everyone is sort of beside themselves about what's happening to the Justice Department now um, and how that gets fixed, uh, you know, short of. What, the ballot box, I don't really know. Yeah, and I do think it's important to note that uh, yeah, as we have this discussion, we know that the blame for uh, for this lays squarely on the shoulders of Bill Barr and Donald Trump. Um, you know, we, we just want to push for for effective oversight. So, Ellie, thanks for thanks for joining me today uh, and, and discussing this. I really appreciate it. Anytime, AG. Thanks. All right, everybody, stay with us. We'll be right back with the Good News Block. So stick around. Hey, everybody, this portion of Daily Beans is brought to you by Ancestry.com. It has been more than 75 years since many courageous soldiers, maybe even your grandfather, left home to fight for the highest possible purpose. Explore Ancestry's new collection of untold stories from World War II. Then find and honor the veterans in your family who served. Yeah, you may be familiar with the major events and battles of World War II, but there are so many more stories to uncover. You can discover the diverse perspectives of those who are there and learn about the untold stories of the men and women who faced World War II with dignity and courage. The skill and bravery of the Tuskegee Airmen, an all-African-American squad of fighter pilots, the incredible women who trained to become pilots and mechanics, the Japanese-American battalion that became uh, one of America's most decorated units despite discrimination against Japanese-Americans at the time. 
In honor of the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, Ancestry has just released a U.S. draft card collection from World War II with over 36 million draft cards completed by fighting-age men in the United States across the country during that time, whether they ended up serving or not. And that's a great chance uh, that, that you could find your relatives in that collection, and it can help you learn more about what, your, what their lives were like. So uncover your ancestors' personal details of our World War II U.S. draft card collection, which shows details like home address, physical description, and more. Find and honor the veterans in your family who rose to the occasion when the world needed them the most and get a new take on their World War II experience. Discover your untold stories and more. Head to my URL at Ancestry.com slash Daily Beans to start discovering your story today. That's Ancestry.com slash Daily Beans. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news. It's on the way. And joining me today for the good news is Amanda Reader. How are you, Mandy? Doing okay. Uh, it's a really hot day in San Diego today. It is. It's like in the 90s. Oh, my God. Yes, it's very hot. Um, how you doing? Uh, I'm good. Um, I'm doing good. Uh, yeah, we'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> we will keep on swimming, uh, right? <laughs> just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. Exactly. Sometimes that's all you have. Yeah. Um, you yeah. have some good news to kick us off, don't you? I most certainly do. It's real quick. Uh, the Navy's top officer, the top dog, head cheese, uh, big cheese, excuse me, head honcho, uh, he is uh, directing his staff to begin drafting an order that would prohibit the Confederate battle flag from all public spaces and work areas aboard naval installations, ships, aircraft, and submarines. So he's taking a, a page from the notebook of the Commandant of the Marine Corps, who did this like last month or a month, two months ago. I can't mm-hmm. remember exactly when. But uh, I'm sure that the Air Force and Army will follow soon. But uh, yeah, there are no Confederate flags allowed. You can't have it in any public space. So I'm, I'm imagining a bunch of people <laughs> with razor blades taking bumper stickers of Confederate flags off their cars because you can't have them on base. Ha <laughs> I really fucking love that. I can't believe it wasn't already a thing. I can't believe it either. You know, it's funny. I've seen a lot of stuff uh, this week with uh, with all of these kind of sweeping changes that are happening kind of culturally with the statues being taken down and, you know, news like this. And I've seen tweets like, well, you know, Germany has no statues of Hitler and no one forgot about him. So I think we're I think we're fine. <laughs> like, you don't need to have a monument to a shitty thing that happened for people to remember the shitty thing. Yeah, I know. And I think a lot of people, especially around the time of Charlottesville, were like, look, put him in a museum as an example of what not to do and move along with your life. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Totally agreed. I love that. Yes. Alrighty. We are getting some really, uh, not just juicy confessions, but juicy good news stories. I mean, people, our listeners have been like in the midst of these protests and um, it's been really cool to see really uh, uh, on the ground good news stories from people who listen to our show. So I will kick it off with Sarah. Sarah is in Seattle and she said, this weekend, a self-proclaimed KKK member drove his car into a crowd of protesters on Capitol Hill in Seattle, got out, pulled a gun, and began shooting. A man named Dan Gregory responded quickly, running at the man, punching him and stopping the attack. I saw this. Did you see footage of this, AG? Yeah, I, I sure did. Yeah. Uh, punching him and stopping the attack, uh, swinging time for police to arrest the man, and most certainly preventing a mass shooting and casual- casualty situation. Dan was shot in the arm, but ultimately survived the attack. 
I had several personal friends of mine in this crowd of protesters who are still alive and with me today because of Dan Gregory. He deserves our attention and praise for his bravery and quick thinking and his willingness to die to save his fellow people. Dan Gregory is a hero. A GoFundMe was started yesterday by Black Lives Matter Seattle to cover his medical bills, expected to only reach 60000 but at this moment in time, the donations sit at over 200000 Oh, wow. Yep. It's incredible. Wow. That's so great. Yeah, I love that. Um, all right. This next one is from Dawn, and, uh, and she says, while most of the media is focusing on the very good news that New Zealand has zero COVID cases, yes, we have mentioned this, I would like to please bring attention to Taiwan. Uh, I must admit, Taiwan is not a place I know an awful lot about. Uh, too many people in the U.S. know very little about Taiwan or confuse us with Thailand. I'm an American citizen for now, living in Taiwan with my dual citizenship holding husband. Taiwan is an island off the coast of mainland China and is where the Chinese government fled during the Communist Revolution. Taiwan was under martial law until 1987 and is now a flourishing and vibrant democracy. The Taiwanese people obviously have very close ties to China, and since the coronavirus outbreak became serious around the Lunar New Year holiday, uh, where there is traditionally much travel between the two countries, that meant that Taiwan was at particular risk for having a huge coronavirus outbreak. Despite that potential and proximity to China, Taiwan has been successful if not more so than New Zealand. Taiwan took swift steps to prevent an outbreak here. We have never been locked down. Public transit has slowed but never stopped. Our female president took steps early on to ramp up domestic production of masks and alcohol to ensure an adequate supply. We did extensive contact tracing and isolation to stop the spread of COVID in its tracks. Yes, we are an island and that does help for sure, but contrast our numbers with New Zealand, keeping in mind the heavy traffic between Taiwan and China. In a nation of 23 million people with a capital city that has a high population density and a heavy use of mass transit, Taiwan has only had 443 cases of COVID-19. Um, of the positive cases, 352 were imported from foreign countries. And then uh, I'm going to skip to the next part. Uh, in additional good news from Taiwan, for this year's presidential election, we had a choice between reelecting our current president or sort of a mini Trump <laughs> who is mayor of one of our southern cities. <laughs> he was overwhelmingly defeated at the ballot box and his city re- launched a recall campaign where he was again overwhelmingly defeated. After seeing the election of Trump shortly before we moved to Taiwan, we were nervous and scared that the same thing would happen here. It was good news indeed to watch democracy prevail and the strongman authoritarianism rejected. I know this has been very long and thank you for your patience, but listen, Taiwan needs recognition and support. It's a beautiful country. The people are kind and sincere. The food is fantastic and we are fiercely democratic here. We were the first country in Asia to legalize marriage equality and yet the international community continues to kowtow to China and their belief that Taiwan belongs to them and not to its people. Um, uh, I'm going to jump to the end here. Uh, Taiwan has been sending aid to other countries, even sending surgical masks to help multiple U.S. states. And yet money from coming from China is more important than the democratic values and freedoms of the Taiwanese people. Please help me tell the world that Taiwan is a vibrant democracy and deserves support. Thank you, Don. That was wonderful and very eye-opening. Yeah. And, and you, you know, a lot of us know, uh, at least here in the States, um, about Taiwan and being in the Olympics and how China forces them to go by the name Chinese Taipei mm-hmm. instead of Taiwan. And so uh, that's also how they're known um, by the International Monetary Fund, because the Republic of China is a member of APEC and its official name in the organization is Chinese Taipei. So that's, um, you know, it's important that we mm-hmm. learn what we can about about Taiwan officially. 
Officially, the Republic of China is a country in East Asia. Taiwan is. It neighbors countries here, according to uh, Wiki, including People's Republic of China to the northwest, Japan to the northeast, and the Philippines. So, I mean, that's that's a really amazing handling of COVID. I mean, let alone, um, you know, Taiwan's, you know, fiercely democratic values. But, but that's amazing to hear that you defeated a Trump-like person. But also just their handling of COVID being so close to China, I'm really impressed. That's incredible. You must have a very... Fun, you know, some really amazing people at some levels of government there. So congrats. Yep. Um, Women get it done. Yeah. And you know, that's I you're right. Everyone's been talking about how well New Zealand has handled it. But I haven't heard anything about Taiwan. Um, because unfortunately, English speaking folks tend to only pay attention to other English speaking countries. And that's the unfortunate truth. <laughs> um, but that's not a good thing. Uh, all right. This next one is from Jordan. And Jordan says, hello, AG and the Daily Beans pod team. Hello, Jordan. I have been a listener from the early Mueller She Wrote days, and I am a big fan. This has been an extremely difficult week for all of us. Between COVID-19 and the fight for justice, a lot of things have been weighing heavy on my heart. Same. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Just a little bit of intensity in the air right now um, in the year 2020. Uh, As a gay man, I have always tried my best to stand up for and help shed light on the issues that surround marginalized people. The past two weeks, though, have been eye-opening. Even though I consider myself an ally to the Black Lives Matter movement, I have so much to learn. Same, dude. Totally same. I feel you. (laughs) Social media has been so overwhelming lately, and I sometimes find it hard to fit into quote-unquote woke culture without it feeling like a competition. One thing that has been truly brought to my attention is that no two people will ever approach your well no two people will ever view your approach to allyship the same way i kept seeing a meme that said we need allies in all lanes it's not just about posting protesting or donating it can also be about having the tough conversations that you've been avoiding with family members uh it's learning black history that was not taught in primarily white public schools it's about listening learning and finding your lane so that's what i've been doing Asking myself, how can I best assist during this time? What am I capable of? Where where can I make the most impact? As someone who follows politics closely, I have decided to help register voters and encourage people to vote in their upcoming primary elections. I have also joined an organization to help write letters to voters in states that we think we can turn blue this year. While I know some of my efforts are a long shot, if I can help a handful of people to learn more about candidates that will work toward creating a more equitable and just future, I will have succeeded. My work will never be done, but if I can truly embrace my lane and encourage civic engagement, well, I just think about the tears in Turtle Dick Mitch's eyes once we vote him out in November. (laughs) 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 <laughs> awesome uh, yeah i i totally get that like i was i i've been trying to find my lane you know where can i help and i think that with my background in labor relations uh and government unions that maybe i can help break the unions the you know the police unions um but uh here in in san diego unfortunately our city council voted eight to one to increase the police budget yesterday, despite calls flooding and breaking the phone system uh, in taking comments on the 2021 budget. Um, Absolutely shocked by that. Uh, Ward was our only city council member that voted against it. Mm -hmm. 
so those other eight have to go. So I'm kind of making that my mission as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to be you know, your little lane. Just starting to dig into that. Um, it, you know, I was thinking somebody mentioned you should run for city council, but I think that there are just too many videos of me singing songs about dicks and booze on the internet for that to be a feasibility <laughs> in my future. But um, you know, I am. I'm always down to 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 help campaign and support for that. But we need to. We need our city council's been dumb for a really long time and this just is icing on the cake so i think that a lot of san diegans and correct me if i'm wrong here because you've lived here longer than i have but i feel like a lot of san diegans because our republicans are not like the worst kind of republicans they're like eh, you know he's republican but like he's down with the gays and stuff you know like it's sort of it's a pretty not that kevin faulkner is like a horrific person or anything but i feel like because like because some California Republicans are not as bad as other Republicans, we, like, give them a pass, <laughs> even though, you know, we could be electing way more progressive people to our city government if we worked a little harder. Well, politically speaking, I think that the problem happens, you know, I think the reason that we're kind of a red city here is because we include the East County, Agreed. Uh, which, you know, does contain some of the n- n- not the best kind of Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yep. yep. But San Diego Central is a really, really blue area. It is. But yeah, we, we are definitely, you know, we're not fortified by massive populations of progressive people like Los Angeles or San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So we're uh, we're bordered on the north by Orange County, which is historically red. We're bordered on the, you know, on the east by uh, Santee and El Cajon and, and the Imperial Valley, which is still still considered San Diego County, which is ruby red. red. Mm-hmm. And that's just where we are uh it's just how we're situated um so yeah uh, we need to we definitely need to work towards that working on that absolutely uh, turning san diego from purple to blue absolutely yeah yeah for sure i i really love this city it's really grown on me i didn't think i would when i first came here i was like i don't know but it's grown on me anyway enough about my love for san diego i'm gonna finish (laughs) off this good news here uh oh the last uh the last good news submission from jordan he says uh i encourage everyone to explore what their lane may be knowing it may not look like someone else's and continue to listen and learn onwards and upwards vote blue 2020 black lives matter fuck yeah thank you Jordan. (laughs) Uh, This next one is from Gwen. Gwen says, my very small town, Hazard, Kentucky, in very red southeastern Kentucky, had a silent march on Saturday. I don't really know what a silent march is, but oh, okay, you just like don't yell or anything. Um, In support of the Black Lives Matter movement, we were joined by our mayor, county sheriff, and our city chief of police. There were over 500 people there, and we were featured in the New York Times. I'm hopeful that all of this means that the tide is turning in our little town, and we can be part of the blue wave in Kentucky in November. Yes! Uh, I love it. I love it so much, and there's a lot of good competition in Kentucky for Senate races against Mitch McConnell, and I really think that just seeing a lot of these um, protests from very small, very red towns Mm -hmm. where hundreds and hundreds of people show up has just been... um, that's incredible. Just been really great. It just it's I think it's a reminder to us. It's I think it's a reminder to us that there are good people everywhere. Well, also I think that like the, this can cross like ideology, it can cross like you know, across the political spectrum like this is not there are white supremacists and everyone else. You know, like it doesn't matter like all the other nuances of our differences. Like you're either like on the side of like white supremacists or you're not so i think this is really an issue that like people can rally around together and hopefully understand more of the reality of the situation because we're actually working towards a common goal and not yelling at each other 
Um, anyway, the next one is the same subject, actually, which is fucking amazing. The next one is from Steph, and she says, Over a thousand people gathered for a very peaceful Black Lives Matter protest in my very small New Hampshire town. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm wondering <sighs> where in New Hampshire. I don't know. Steph, if you're listening, let it tweet at us or email us and let us know where in New Hampshire because a thousand people in a small town in New Hampshire for a Black Lives Matter protest and, you know, uh, 500 people in a small town in Kentucky, including, you know, their sheriff <laughs> and their chief of police. Like, this is fucking amazing, you guys. I'm so, like, heartened by this and I'm so impressed that this is not just in the big cities where you would expect these movements you know it's all over the country it's like really heartening so thanks for sending in your good news yeah there's only 1.3 million people in all of new hampshire yeah and a thousand of them showed up for this particular protest yeah that's wonderful it's so amazing it's really honestly like as terrifying as everything is like all of this like mass mobilization of people and all of this peaceful protesting and seeing that this is becoming a reality not just to people in one particular part of the political spectrum but like so many new people are waking up to this it's like it's really it's incredible so it's very heartening to me and um and i think more good things are going to come from this yep i agree um i have a i have a little note here sent to me yeah by our listener mia and she says, hi, my name is Mia. I was hoping you could help me out. My mom is a big fan, but she's been going through a difficult time with everything going on in the United States. I was hoping you could help. She's an amazing mom getting her PhD and working as a professor at U Portland. And she listens to your show every morning, adding comments to further prove your points. I guess she thinks you can hear her, but I don't know. It would mean the world if you could say she's doing great. Her name is Claire. Aww. So. Hi, Claire. Claire. From your daughter, Mia. Congratulations. You have a wonderful daughter. And congratulations, Mia. You have a wonderful mom. And and best of luck with your PhD. That dissertation is a bear. Um, and thanks for listening. Aww. And how awesome is that? That we have just multi-generations mm-hmm. writing into us. I really, really love that. I know. I really love that, too. It's incredible. Thank you guys all so much for your, um, for your wonderful good news stories. In fact, I wanted to share a tweet that we got... Um, let me just find it. Uh, someone tweeted at us today, Claudia, and said, I'm sitting on the side of the tub, paralyzed by Mandy's reading of the very emotional submissions of your listeners. I'm weeping. So very real and human. Please don't stop. So, you know, you guys are helping each other. You know, the only reason I'm able to read these and touch people is because you share them with me. It's not, these are not my stories, they're your stories. So please keep sharing them because it's not just helping us, you're helping other people who listen to the show. And, uh, everyone can use a little bit more good news right now. So, so, uh, so thank you. Yes. And thanks, Claudia. Yeah. Thank you, Claudia. (sighs) Ah, it's just always love ending the show this way. So everybody, again, keep sending in your stories, send in your quarantine confessions, head to quarantineconfessionspod.com. You can send them there. You can, uh, there's a link on our pinned tweet at daily beans pod on Twitter. And uh, that show will second show will be coming out Saturday. Looking forward to that. And um, do you have any final thoughts, Mandy, before we get out of here? Um, no, no final thoughts today. It was, it was great to to uh, to read the good news as always. Yes, the shit show lullaby. <laughs> Brought to you by <laughs> Daily Beans. Yeah. As we as we talk you to sleep with our silky smooth voices. Just keep swimming, everyone. <laughs> yes, just keep swimming, 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 <laughs> and. Um, 
I feel a little guilty every time I catch a clownfish or a surgeonfish on on uh, Animal Crossing, <laughs> little, little dories and and Nemos. But um, I just want to take them all to the museum. Uh, anyway, but Blathers will only take one of each. What a dick. Uh, Anyway, um, I just hope everyone is is doing well and keep just keeping the fight. Just keep fighting and just keep swimming. And I love you all. So everyone, please take care of yourselves. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health and take care of each other. I've been AG. I've been Mandy Reedy. And them's the beanies. That's Pod Dog. (laughs) Sorry. That's the Pod Dog. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>